Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the Revive Podcast. We're excited you're here. This podcast will include our Sunday morning Sunday school class, our worship night teachings, and an occasional fun interviews. I'm excited to share with you this week's episode. If this is your first time here uh, in Sunday school or first time here at Fredonia, uh, we would love to get to know you. And we would love to get your name, get your number, and take you out for coffee, take you out for lunch, and just hear your story and help you get connected. Uh, the best way we can do that, though, is if you fill out something really cool called a blue card. And you can find blue cards on the tables or near the coffee or in the main service. But if you fill one of those out and, and just place it where you found it, uh, we would love to just get to know you, hear your story. So if you're, if you're new in the room and that's you, uh, think about filling out a blue card. We'd love to have you join us for that. Acts chapter 6. Now, if you've been with us, you know that we're working our way through the book of Acts. And Acts is essentially just the second part of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is Luke's telling of the life of Jesus and what it was like to be among Jesus as his disciples and and who was Jesus. Not just what did he do, but who was he? That's kind of the real theme of the book of Luke. And some of our community groups uh, are going through the book of Luke. So shout out to you guys if you're doing that. The Acts is the second part where Luke, the same author, is writing the story of the early church. He's writing the story, but how did the church start? You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Like we're here, we're in this building, there's churches. It's Nacogdoches, there's a church on every corner, but in donut shops at every corner, that's a different story. And how did the church get uh, to where it is now? And the book of Acts just kind of tells us how it began. But it's, it's kind of sporadic. It tells this story, then it tells this story, and then it follows Peter, then it follows Paul, and there's this guy named Silas and a guy named Barnabas, and they just kind of follow different people's stories. So it's less like a biography of something and more of just like excerpts of how the church began in order that we can think about our lives, and we can think about the heritage of the church, but we can begin to realize the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. I told you a couple weeks ago that the main character in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. Um, And so we can see what does it look like to be someone filled with the Spirit of God, living in communion with one another, and on mission um, with what what God's asked us to do. We trace that back to Acts 1 where he says, you'll receive power when my Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so that's the book of Acts. And so we've started the book of Acts, and we, we've seen God's Spirit come at Pentecost. We've seen the church is formed, how it starts at 3,000 people, um, and then this man gets healed, and the church actually grows to 5,000 people. We see boldness in Peter and John. They got imprisoned, and that there's kind of some tension between the religious leaders of the day and the church. Now, they weren't known as, as Christians. They were just kind of known as followers of Jesus, uh, at one point in the text, they actually have a church called The Way. That was the name of their church. I like that. You know, everyone has uh, hipster, trendy church names. Well, that started in the book of Acts, The Way Church. Um, and you see, as you read the text more and more, that the church is developing structure and it's developing um, just some practicalities. How many of y'all know that, like, church is a spiritual thing, but it's also very practical, right? Like, there are needs to be met, and there are ways that we can go about doing that. Like, just, that just makes sense. Like, when you come to church, we have Sunday school, and we have worship, and we have small groups. But you also, like, 
We're going to clothe the people who need clothes. We're going to feed the people who need um, food. We're going to take care of the widows. We're going to take care of the orphans. We're going to reach out to our community. Like, we're going to be on campus and tell people about Jesus, right? Whoop. But, like, we're go- there are practical things to that. It was an interesting thing. In Acts 6, we kind of begin to see behind the scene of the practicals. And you might be incredibly bored right now because you're like, I don't want practicals. Just teach me about Jesus. And, yeah, we're going to get there. I love the fire. Acts 6 the first deacons um, are assigned. Now, when you hear the word deacon, you, you might think of anything. But this is the first time that deacons ever show up in the church. And the idea behind a deacon is that there's someone that's been appointed to serve the local church. That's all that deacons are. Uh, deacons aren't meant to exercise power and authority and rule. Uh, no, they are just servants of the local church. Here's what happened. This church had grown to... 5,000 plus, at some point, they quit counting and just said it, it kept growing. So it was a really, really, really large church, and there was 12 apostles. And 12 people can't take care of, let's just say, 10,000 people. Like, that is, doesn't work. And they said, you know what we need? We need people who will rise to the occasion and will help us out. And so they said, I want you all to find seven people who are of, of good, uh, good reputation, who are full of the Spirit, who are wise, and let's give them the charge of caring for these people. Because there came this report that some of the widows were receiving great care and some widows were receiving poor care. And they said, that can't be the case. We need to care for all people. So they created these deacons. That make, this makes sense? They created deacons. A very practical thing. All right. Well, one of these deacons is a guy named Stephen. And today we get to hear about Stephen's story. Um, I mentioned earlier that the Holy Spirit is the main character in the book of Acts. And so today we pause from the life of Peter. We pause from the life of John. We haven't got to Paul. And we look today entirely at a man named Stephen. And I'll just tell you, Stephen's courage today is phenomenal. Stephen's understanding of the scripture is phenomenal. And Stephen's ability to forgive those who have wronged him is phenomenal. And we see that he is full of the Spirit in all of these occasions. So here's what happens. Stephen, well, let's just go to verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. Let's read. We're going to read all the way through verse 15, and then I'm going to kind of break it down. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Remember, he's just a deacon. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from the Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Hope you all caught that. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered us. And then he gazed at him, and all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now let's break this down. So Stephen's going about caring for people. And in the midst of caring for people, he has the opportunity to do miraculous signs. Now, contextually, we can look at that and say he might have helped someone who couldn't walk. Walk. He might have performed a miracle 
in those regards. He's helping those in need. He's caring for the community, just like anyone who loves their community and full of the Spirit should do. Stephen is modeling what a life that is full of the Spirit can be, where you are you're submitting to the rule and the reign of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you're in the community caring for the community, and in the results of that, being full of grace, being full of power, wonders and signs are being done. But what, did y'all see that what happened, though? There came this dispute against Stephen. You see, sometimes when you're doing the things that the Lord has asked you to do, there can be this dispute that comes up against you. And this dispute came from different people. It said that it came from the synagogues from all these different nations. Y'all catch that? A bunch of different nations, tribes. Religious leaders, once again, are disputing and against those followers of Jesus. Have we sensed the pattern yet in the book of Acts? Religious leaders are now pushing back and are against the followers of Jesus, particularly Stephen. And all Stephen's doing is that he's full of grace and full of power, caring for his community. But religious leaders are pushing back. And they make claims against him. And they try to go toe-to-toe with him. And they try to, like, challenge his wisdom. Uh, It's kind of like when two of y'all get in a room and try to argue about who's smarter and y'all like try to flex on each other and say like who knows more knowledge about random this stuff. I don't know if girls do this, guys do this all the time. We normally just call it talking about sports, but we're actually secretly having a competition about who knows more about the Cowboys. And then we just kind of go on from there. But he, they're doing this thing where they're in this room and say, okay, I actually know more. No, I know more. No, I know more. No, I know more. But they said they couldn't, they couldn't keep up because they could not withstand the wisdom in the spirit by which he was speaking. Isn't that beautiful? The spirit of God within this ordinary man named Stephen allowed him to speak with such truth and power that the religious leaders of the day could find no fault. They could not look at anything he was saying and say, oh, no, you're wrong because of this. You see, the spirit of God just lives within him and preached truth from him. So what happens? Well, like any people group that gets jealous, they try to, try to put him down and try to blame him. But they, when they can't blame him, they say, well, okay, well, we'll just manufacture lies against him. Okay? So Stephen's in a rough spot. They've now got these witnesses. It's like a trial. Imagine, like, your favorite courtroom drama, which is going to be different for all of y'all. But we have a, all right, and that's the scene. And they get these, these witnesses that come up, and they bring all these false claims Well, I heard him say he was going to do this. I heard him say he was going to do this. I've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Moses is very clear here. What about, what are we going to do here? Here's the claim that they bring. They say that Stephen was teaching false claims about Moses, Moses' teachings, and the temple. Those are the three things they're saying. Now, why are those important? Moses, Moses' temple, uh, temple and the, uh, and the, the temple. I, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> These are the claims. Why does this matter? Because religious leaders at the day were well known for being a lot more concerned with going to the temple and doing religious deeds, following all of these rules and commandments that they've created, they were more concerned with that than encountering God and living for God. But the thing is, they would call that meeting God. 
It's kind of like saying for you, if you were really, really, really committed to going to church and really, really, really committed to helping people and going to a college group and, and being a part of this community, and you called that encountering God, but never actually sat and met with God. And the absent of the interaction with God, but called it meeting with God. And this is what, this is what they have. Um, so much so that they've actually idolized the temple. They've worshipped the temple as this great thing. And, and they've taken which is always meant to be just a conduit for people to interact with God and have made it the thing. It's kind of like when we idolize the wrong things in our life, where these are good things that are meant to bring us to God. You might say, sure, we never do that. Well, how many of y'all will read your Bible after not having read your Bible in a while and then go, ah, oh, yes, I feel better. I'm a better Christian now. Because you've placed emphasis on the act of reading the scripture instead of the emphasis on meeting God and spending time with the holy God, the creator. Now, I'm, you're never gonna hear me say I'm anti-reading your Bible. You should read your Bible. But when you read your Bible, don't try to puff yourself up and say, look how much better I am. No, just read your Bible to meet your God. Read your Bible to meet your father. So this is the, the, these are the claims that are made against him. And Stephen goes into this 60-verse speech. I'm not gonna read it. 60-verse speech, where he essentially breaks down the entire Old Testament. So some of y'all in the room, when I say Old Testament, you go, yes, I love that. And others of y'all are like, I don't have a clue about anything in that. Like, who, when, what, who are the Israelites? Who was Moses? There's a ton of questions. Well, he talks about three different people in his speech, and I want to kind of analyze what he says about them. Uh, one, it's going to help you tie in an entire narrative of Scripture together. Uh, but two, it'll also allow you to understand how he's going up against the claims that are being made. And then we'll talk about our life. So he's on trial, and they've kind of, they've gathered around, and the high priest comes up to him and says, all right, Stephen, are these things true? And Stephen knows these guys are going to kill him. Stephen knows where this is happening. These are, these are the same religious leaders that just killed Jesus. And he's standing up and saying Jesus was the Christ. He's standing up saying Jesus of Nazareth is the real thing, not the temple. The temple's not it. Worship Jesus. Those are the claims he's making. And he knows that Jesus just died for making those claims. And he knows that if he continues to say that, he's going to die. This is the moment that he's faced in. It's one of those renounce Jesus or die moments. Okay? You all heard about those. And this is what Stephen does. He goes into an Old Testament illustration where he talks about three different characters. He talks about Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. And he tells a story about Abraham, about how Abraham was with God and was in a place, and then God called him out of that place and said, go to the, the land that I will call you. And how he left the place called Ur of the Chaldeans, and he, and he went to this unknown land, and the, the presence of God was with Abraham, and Abraham followed God. Okay, he uses the story of Abraham and how Abraham is the, the founding father of our faith and, and just exemplifies that Abraham met with God as he followed him to different places geographically. Then he goes to the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is that Abraham has 12 kids and, um, and throughout the lineage of the 12 patriarchs, 
And one of them is a guy named Joseph. And Joseph ends up in Egypt. But in Egypt, Joseph interacts with God. And, and that Joseph has interactions with God, and God is working in Egypt. And then he goes on to this guy named Moses. Moses is born of the Israelites, but while the Israelites are enslaved in, in Egypt, Moses is raised in Pharaoh's home. Moses is the guy who comes out to help the Israelites. But when he gets scared, he runs away into the wilderness. What he thought was going to be helpful, he got rejected, and Moses runs away into the, to the wilderness. And yet it's in the wilderness that he meets God in the story of the burning bush. Y'all know the story of the burning bush? Moses meets God in a wilderness. Abraham meets God along the way. Joseph has the handprint of God on all of his actions in the middle of Egypt. Why does he say these types of things? Well, then he goes to the story of Solomon. I want y'all to flip to chapter 7, verse 47. Just summarize like 46 verses. Look at what he says in verse 47. But it was Solomon who built a house for God. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Let's stop there. So now he goes on into the story of Solomon. We talked before about how David was like the biggest celebrity in Jewish culture. Everybody loved King David. Well, King David's son is a guy named Solomon. One of his sons is a guy named Solomon. King David wanted to build a temple for God. David had the really cool experience of building himself this incredible uh, place to live. And he said, man, it's not right that I live in this such a great place. Um, we need to, uh, and the Lord doesn't. We need to build a temple for the Lord. That was David's heart. But it was actually Solomon who built the temple. And so, you remember how the religious leaders idolized the temple? Well, this is where the temple begins, and that underneath the reign of Solomon. And there's this prophecy that comes out of Isaiah, as in verses 49 and 50, that breaks down a little bit about our misconceptions about how the presence of God interacts with humanity. And he says in verse 49, you know, heaven's my throne, the earth's my footstool, and what kind of house will you build me? And, or what is the place of my rest? Did I not make all of these things? He says, how are you going to confine me to a building? Which should get us excited. The presence of God cannot be confined to a building. And, and that the presence of God lives within you and then it goes wherever you go. I'd like to just take a very quick and brief moment to talk about something before we go back to the story. Some of y'all have come to Nacogdoches and have encountered God like you never have before in your life. And for that, we praise God. But here's the beauty 
is that the God that you encounter in Nacogdoches is the same God that you encounter when you go back home or when you go back to those places where life was hard and life was challenging. The same God that you've met with here is the same God back there. Now let's, let's flip that. Some of y'all, knack might be hard right now. And you're struggling to meet with God. There's all of these changes. You don't really like know what to do with yourself. And you're like, what about those days when, when I was back home when I could meet with God? Everything feels different now. You might say something like that. I have really good news. Your feelings, they're leading you down a path of confusion. But the truth is that the same God that you've met with back home or whatever place that you have a vivid memory of meeting God is the same God that's here in Nacogdoches. If I were to ask you a question, if I was sitting down with a cup of coffee with you and I said, can you tell me a time that you've met God, where were you? Tell me a time you encountered God. And whatever place comes to your mind right now, that same God is here in this room. That same God is with you when you go back to your dorm room, to your apartment. That same God is in your class. That same God is with you wherever you go. And that is beautiful for me. Because sometimes we have this trick in our brain that says, no, 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 I go to Nacogdoches. I'll just use that example. I go to Nacogdoches and God does great things there. But when I come back home, the work of God stops. And the incredible work that he's doing, and I've seen him do on that campus, and I've seen him do in my own heart, it stops when I come home. This is my break. The work of God ends. I might go home for a weekend and think that. And I just want to remind you that that is not true. The work of God continues. The presence of God is with you. The same God is still at work regardless of where you go. The psalmist says this way, where can I go from your spirit and where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the depths of the earth, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your right hand will lead me and your hand will hold me. Wherever you go, God is with you. Why is that so important? Because there are times in your life that you'll be discouraged and you'll say, does God see me? Does God care? Is God with me? Has God forgotten? And God is with you in those moments. And that was the point that Stephen was trying to make. Stephen was trying to tell these religious leaders, you guys are emphasizing these religious deeds and following these rules and the actual geographical location of the temple. And he's saying, look at Abraham. He walked all over this place and met with God. Look with Joseph. He was in Egypt. Look at Moses. He was in Egypt. Then he was in the desert. Then he was here. And then he was at the Red Sea. And guess what? He met with God. And he was at Mount Sinai. He met with God. And the law that Moses got was from God. And he wasn't at the temple. Now, they had this place called the Tent of Meeting back then, but the presence of God would go with them. He's saying, you, your focus is on the wrong thing. Look at verse 51. Stephen, my friends, has a little bit of a spine. You know those guys that just kind of like say it like it is? I'm finding out that Scripture is full of them. Verse 51. He knows he's about to die. He knows he's about to die. 
You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your father not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You see that? He says Jesus was the Christ, and he says, you stiff-necked people. He says, why are you being so stubborn? You're missing the point. I think about our lives. Are we ever the stiff-necked people who God is clearly talking to us? He's clearly revealing something to us, but we're so stubborn that we're missing it. We're not even opening up our mind and our heart to the reality that what is God saying to me in this moment, but we're closed off, not interacted, not, not, um, not open to interacting with God, not interested in interacting with God. We become a stiff-necked people. He says you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. To say that is to say, you say you're religious, you don't even know God at all. Imagine saying that to the religious leaders of the day. He says, you're completely off. You've always rejected these prophets. Jesus himself comes, and you killed him. He's saying, you are, your priorities are completely off. It's Jesus of Nazareth, not these religious laws. And I think the same message is for you. Like, if you, if you want to come to know God, you come to meet Jesus. And if you just want to live a moral life, then you change your behaviors. We don't just change our behaviors to meet Jesus. Behavior modification is not the end goal. Getting you to just do the right things instead of the wrong things isn't the, isn't the end goal. But meeting God, recognizing that out of that relationship comes change in your life. So what happens to Stephen? Well, here's, I'll just paraphrase it. Here's what happens. They kill him. Uh, there's this really weird rule um, the, the Jews were technically under Roman rule that says you're not allowed to execute someone but if they if they die by natural causes um, then it doesn't then that's fine and so the way they got around that is they would pick up really large stones and throw them at people and they'd kill them and they would call that natural causes and when I say stones I don't mean little pebbles I mean like boulders and they would throw them at them and that's how he died and so while he's being target practice, he says something. He's dying. He just has preached the sermon of his lifetime. And in his time connecting the dots for these religious leaders, he, it, see, he's not just telling them that they're idiots and don't know how to think. I don't want to come across that way. He's relating to the things that they value and is helping them see the truth from their perspective. When we talk to people, we've got to relate to the things that they value and help them see truth from that perspective. That's what he's doing when he's talking about the members of the Old Testament, the characters of the Old Testament. But as he's being stoned, he says something. He says, he says Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he dies. Where else do we see that story? The crucifixion. When Jesus dies, he says, 
He says, Lord, forgive them. They do not know what they do. You see that Stephen being full of the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that's within Jesus, acts like Jesus in his community, teaches the truth about Jesus, and then dies in the same manner that Jesus dies. Because the Spirit of God within him allowed him to walk in a way in his context that is in in regards to a way that reflects Jesus. It, It even says that he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When Jesus dies, he says, Father, into your spirit I commit my hands. It mirrors it completely. Stephen had the boldness to die for what he believed in. And this is the part of the story where someone normally say, do you have the boldness to die for what you believe in? But there's an assumption there, and that assumption is that you're Stephen in the story. And some of us are Stephen. And some of us are the ones that have got it wrong and are the stiff-necked people. And some of us just don't know where we land, and that's okay. Ask the Spirit of God right now. God, where am I in this? Is there part of me that is... Is, is looking opposition in the face and I'm thinking about will I respond with boldness like Stephen or will I quiver in fear? Or maybe it's I'm rejecting God and I'm fully aware of it. You might think rejecting God just being salvation. You might be rejecting an act of obedience that he has for you. Like there's, there's something God's called you to for every reason inside of you, you've said no. This happens within me sometimes, guys. I'm not trying to say it's just you, it happens in me where I believe that God's sensing me to do something, and for whatever reason, I kind of just keep putting it off and putting it off, right? Like that essay you don't want to write, you just keep putting it off and putting it off. We do that sometimes with God. He calls us to this place of obedience, and rather than being open to obey, we become a more stiff-necked people who are stubborn. So what do we do, and how do we respond? I'd like to end with how this story ends. Stephen dies, but God gives them this incredible moment that right as he dies, and you guys can read it in Acts 7, and if you have like 15 minutes later today, you should read Acts 7, especially if you're like an Old Testament buff or you don't know anything about the Old Testament. So this is perfect for you. This is how the story ends. God allows Stephen to see into heaven. This is the first person to ever die for their faith. Y'all see that? The first member of the church to die for what they believe in. And God allows Stephen to look into heaven where he sees Jesus at the right hand of God, standing at the right hand of God. And he is ready to go be with him. The Bible teaches to be absent with the bodies, be present with the Lord. So he knows that he is about to be with Jesus. And he knew Jesus. Here's a really cool part about that story. Everywhere else throughout Scripture, when it talks about Jesus being at the right hand of God, it shows him seated at the right hand of God. But in this story, it shows that Jesus has stood up. And he's peering, and he's looking down, as if to say, okay, the first one who will die for my name's sake, the person who will have boldness in this moment, be full of the Spirit, There's a special attention that Jesus gives in that. And that's the heart of Jesus. 
That's the heart of our Father. The one who stands up, who looks down and sees it. The one who does not just sit idly by, but the one who gets into our business, whose presence goes with us. And, and just my prayer is that whatever God is asking you to do, you would respond with a yes and that you would have boldness. And if you don't know what God's asking you to do, you would sit alone in your bedroom, in your dorm room, and say, God, what is it? Help me see it. Help me understand. You would ask your friends, I think God's asking me to do this. I don't know how. Can you help me? We want to be people that say yes to Jesus. And Stephen said yes. And all he started doing was caring for widows. That's all he was doing. And then as he was caring for widows, just was full of the Spirit and cared for the community. That's it. That's all he did. And so the thing God might be asking you to do might seem small in your head. But I would just, I would beg you and implore you, say yes to Jesus. And I pray that for myself, that I would say yes to Jesus. I pray that we are people that say yes to Jesus. And, and think about Stephen. Think about the Lord standing up to see him. The love that's in that moment. Let's pray. God, thank you for the example of Stephen. We want to be people who say yes to you, not to be the people who are stiff-necked, who are stubborn, who are resisting you. God, we ask that we are people that say yes to you. So Holy Spirit, speak to us. Speak directly to our hearts. Guide us, Lord. We are ready to meet with you. We just want to thank you that you're here, that your presence is with us at all times. We're grateful for you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. I got one announcement. So today at 4 p.m., we're doing a community drive. And so pretty much if you show up, you'll be put into a team, and your team is going to travel throughout the community to different houses and when you go to that house, you're going to give the household um, like a cute little fall basket. I don't know. It's going to have goodies in it. Uh, and you're going to check up on the household, see if they need anything. Um, and so that starts at 4 p.m. Um, and so I believe as college students in Nacogdoches, we're not only called to reach the campus of SFA, but also the community of Nacogdoches. So if you feel led to do that at 4 p.m., join us. So that's it. Bye.